The onrushing horde of a tyranid swarm are a terrible sight to behold. Scuttling termagants rub shoulders with deadly gene stealers. Huge carnifexes lumber forward beside tall tyranid warriors in an avalanche of rattling armor plates, glittering fangs, and gigantic claws. Discipline is hard to maintain against such a horrifying foe, as many men are driven mad with despair or frozen with terror at their approach. It is well known that destroying the more intelligent creatures in the swarm is essential to stop a tyrannid advance. Training in recognition and fire discipline is of some help in identifying the best targets, but the chaos and confusion of the battlefield make it difficult for troops to pick out their targets amidst the swarming mass of creatures. Ultimately, it has proven best to direct fire at the largest tyrannids in sight and pray to the Emperor that some of them are the leaders. Inquisitor Agmar, halting the abomination. Codex Tyranids, nice and colorful. Um, much love for Tyranids. Are you, are you asking me or telling me? Yeah, uh, well, both, I guess. Um, I have a lot of love for Tyranids. How about yourself? Clearly, clearly, and, and more power to you. Uh, me too, actually, um, to a large extent. I mean, you can see it right there. I get main credit on Tyranids. Of course, this wasn't the first time Tyranids uh, appeared in Warhammer 40,000. They were around right since Rogue Trader. Um, but out of all of the races, I think in 40K, they've probably gone through one of the biggest evolutions <laughs> uh, ironically enough over the course of their uh, appearances so it's an interesting snapshot to look back at second edition i guess they're kind to... of like you you've been entertaining us for decades and doing different uh, roles as a, a, a total creator for games and advisor <laughs> and things like that so yeah yeah um, i mean I, I still work in tabletop games now um, but it must be said i more often take a, a consulting role these days uh, you have you got any involvement in the paranoia sort of resurgence heard whispers no, about that no? no i didn't even know that there was a paranoia resurgence oh, again cool. what is that the the umptieth time <laughs> yeah exactly because i know because um, i know of at least two paranoia yeah. previous paranoias so is this the third one that's coming up possibly okay <laughs> no worries. No, not and, my uh, thing. Never my thing for paranoia. No, that's fine. I it. Uh, I've never written for it. Oh, you'd have to get your whip out if you if you were playing as a games master, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. To a certain extent, the setup for the great games master to to be evil to the players mm. is, is just so intrinsic. It's there's almost no challenge there. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's easy to be evil. Now, um, I guess there was a lot of influences um, with Tyranids, as you mentioned. They've been around for a long time. Um, Doom of the Elder, um, Starfleet. Um, back further. Yeah. Further back. Advanced. My, my, first, my first encounter with them, um, yep. aside from in Rogue Trader, it was actually Advanced Space Crusade. Yep. Um, which came out, you know, 
on the heels of well to try and take advantage of space crusade yeah but um in a, in a curious twist of fate for whatever reason it was decided I, I didn't it was like right when i landed back in 1990 in the games workshop studio uh i think it was actually 91 jervis was working on it and i helped him out with it and i never quite understood the the reasoning behind why they did tyranids i mean it was very characterful and we did a lot about tyranids which i kind of built on when it came to doing the second edition codex and we did a, a white dwarf army list in between times as well just get them into 40k in a, a meaningful fashion we got a few miniatures done like the carnifex for example was the biggest thing that got done at that time and some nice um, termigants as we started calling them so how how would you have been approached to sort of modernize tyranids from advanced space crusade tyranid attack etc into a codex for warhammer 40,000 um it was a, at first it was a very kind of organic <laughs> again yeah. uh, process in the so there were some plastics done and a ton of art had been done uh, for advanced space crusade itself adrian smith yeah a lot of adrian smith art in fact he was the i think the primary illustrator but i think wayne did some stuff for it too and dave gallagher it was all hands-on because it was a yep. big box game with you know floor pans blobby um organic looking floor pans sphincter doors and the whole nine yards so a, a lot of effort got into it on that front just creatively and because white dwarf was a, a monthly magazine uh it always had a continual you know more to be fed for new material and honestly with like plastic tyranid warriors lying around and plastics you have to bear in mind were not commonplace back then um they were done specifically for a big box game and the rest of the ranges would generally be done in metal so it was a real rarity to have plastics at all so to have some 40k plastics lying around not doing anything was just like criminal basically oh and we had gene stealers as well of course from space orcs so you had plastics gene stealers plastic turnitive warriors and honestly certainly back in second edition of those that was enough miniatures to make an army you know you've got two different kinds of miniatures off you go we're off to the races so it wasn't a big stretch to actually round that out a little bit further which is kind of what we did initially in that white dwarf list and so when we came to the second edition it was just like continuing that process of like layering in some more creatures and I'd done um, Hive War as well for Space yes. Marine Second Edition, and that gave a big opportunity to explore. They were always really useful to do uh, on that level, the the expansions for Space Marine, because it it gave you a macro look at the warfare, how a how a race would fight. You know, they're big machines as well as all the little stuff. So it, it stopped you coming at it with too much of a sort of like skirmish idea, which was very easy to do when you came at it from the other end, from like the rogue trader end. It was all about, you know, small elite teams and stuff like that. Yeah. But it forced you to think about war, you know, the proper grim dog, planetary invasion kind of level of war, which was always one of the big appeals about 40K was the scale of it, to me at least. So um, when it came to the Codex, it seemed very right to sort of like take the opportunity to lean into it more. Um, there was a bit of a problem with the advanced space crusade kind of view of Tyranids in that, that there were this just completely unstoppable tsunami where they showed up. And if they showed up at uh, a planetary system, then that was that end of story, you know, 
there was nothing you could do. There was far too many of them to fight in any meaningful fashion, Shadow of the Warp, all that sort of stuff. So I almost had to like tone them down a bit from there to something that you could fight with a squad of Space Marines and still keep that um, idea that it only represented, you know, the leading edge of this, again, you know, threat that would literally consume the planet you were standing on, given a chance. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting exercise to get into really getting into that in second edition because it was kind of melding that skirmish level at one end but with that hive war idea of like the big war the huge planetary invasion the massive bio titans and all the, the whole nine yards at the other end and trying to get across the idea that it is an escalation and you know this basically games to be fought at every level of it you could sort of see um across all of the games uh, a bit of cross compatibility with units with tyranid attack advanced space crusade etc and sort of um maybe a bit complex and bloated rule system to get an army versus army game happening which mm -hmm. obviously led to uh, warhammer 40,000 coming out i guess my question then is um, there was a few things that got slashed, a few really weird units too. Things like mm. Dominators from Rogue Trader um, or the Tyranid Squigs, which I absolutely love and <laughs> struggle to get a hold of, yeah. um, which, you know, turned into... That, that was like sheer that. opportunism because the Squigs have been done for, for while the Orcs. And oh, they, they were just like funny little models that Kev Adams had spat out. Um basically in between with the bits of leftover putty from making orcs um <laughs> but they were cute and there was kind of a tradition for it because the chaos sorcerers years before had uh, a nice little range of familiars that just yes. had made and they're really popular those little models people love them so they, they made the squigs too because they're, they're lots of fun you can stick them on the models stick them on the bases things like that but it meant that there, there was actually a, a range of griblies and a lot of them were actually kind of semi-based off some of the advanced space crusade things that um or the little art from yeah 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 adrian smith bits so it didn't take much to sort of like a, okay we could actually turn that into a base of monsters and like i say we were actively scavenging when we did the white dwarf list we were actively scavenging for like anything that we could include into it to give it a bit more diversity over Tyranid Warriors and Gene Steelers, which were the two things that we actually had at one turn against. So the other, th I, I guess one of my other questions is to like, you went from Tyranid Warriors, Hunter Slayers, Screamer Killers mm -hmm. and switched to Latin naming conventions, things like Well, that's the right, they were still Hunter Slayers back then, weren't they? Yeah, yeah and the yep. Carnifex was still the Screamer Killer back then. Yeah, so the kind effects um, meant to butcher thing, and I think Termigans oh, yeah, yeah. had other meanings which I won't explore. But um, and Harridan, of <laughs> course. Um, yeah, what? Well, well, who came up with that? What was the the deal with that? Me and Jess, me and Jess awesome. came up with all of that. Uh, it kind of started with me doing it a lot back in um, Hive War because I needed a bunch of names for like bio tanks, bio titans, and things like that. I respect. Uh, yeah, Harrispex, Hyrigules, um, Hierophant, Malefactors, Hierophants, Perfect. all that stuff, all, all out of the dictionary, basically. Yeah. Because uh, even back when we were doing Advanced Space Crusade, we, we started running up against problems with the thisy thatty names, 
the, the classic one we came up with was the pincher poker and all this sort of thing. Grab this and then they, they, yeah, and they, they just started to get a bit samey and meaningless the more of them you did. And it was clearly going to become more and more of a problem the more of them we did. So that was why we um, made a conscious sort of decision to move away from that and give them effectively like imperial designations that were a bit latin sounding, which yeah. you know, after the books and go and find loads of obscure words that aren't actually Latin. We still use them, um, but they're obscure, hierodial and stuff like that. It's not so like a Magos biologist uh, classification? Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, that, that was very nascent back then, but there was this idea that, you know, there was this gigantic Gothic Imperium and its scientists were Gothic and its computers were Gothic and the spaceships were Gothic. So their names for things were Gothic as well um, to help lean into all of that. And it created more of a cohesive framework to use for, for expanding on um, the model range and giving them distinct names rather than the the see that sort of a names that we'd been having to resort to earlier so Perfect. yeah 100 percent conscious decision to to move from one to the other uh, and i know people miss names like the screaming killer and stuff like that which is why we kept them in as nicknames yeah um of like well that's what the imperial guard called them you know they're not going to call it a con effects are they they're going to call it screamer killers or something like that hunter slayers so it, it was still sort of like it was like it was a classic piece of 40k expansion of like well we're going to expand on it and we're going to acknowledge what went before and try and embody that within there somehow but also tack more onto the outside of it as we go and hopefully not create a problem for ourselves later uh, which was a lot of 40k was trying not to create a problem for yourself later and more yeah. like create opportunities for yourself later I guess um, another thing I noticed like while flicking through the book itself is um, a lot of the older sort of uh, art you would have seen in Codex Imperialis or model shots that had mm. things like Zoats were now removed and replaced with shots with uh, the newer model range, of course. Um, it was very confusing as a teenager to get um, Warhammer second, uh, second edition box set flick through the book and then see units like Zoats and think, um, well, what the hell is that? Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, now... It's a weird one. And one thing I'm going to say, first of all, is the yeah. way I pronounce that troop type is oh, Zoat, yeah, correct not me. Zoat. Yep. yep. Um, I'm Tyranid not saying you wrong. I know, that was another one. I thought we'd go through that one too, of like <laughs> Tyranid from the planet Tyron. I know it makes no sense, but that's just the way it is. Um, and Zotes, yeah, Zotes was a weird one actually. I don't know why we dropped them out because they were always kind of weirdly popular. I think it was just felt that they didn't really fit, yeah, because the, the, the previous depiction had been as like semi ambassadorial creatures basically from the Turinids, which you could kind of weave in, but it didn't fit with a tabletop army. And I don't know why the models weren't up for it. I think they may have just been not viable anymore because the mold would knacked or something sure. like that. Um, but yeah, we didn't include them. We kind of dropped them out because they didn't fit the theme. Because Tyranids, in, ever since Advanced Space Crusade, really, Tyranids hadn't been anybody with diplomats. You know, yeah. they were just a galactic hunger and you couldn't talk to it, you couldn't negotiate with it. Um, it would just eat you. So the, the idea that it would have ambassadors was uh, sort of ran counter to that. Uh, I mean, subsequently, it's been work that, yeah, they did at one point, and the ambassadors actually kind of like went rogue and 
uh, try to separate themselves from the hive mind and so on and so on. So there's been various stories around that. Again, you try and embody and build on top of rather than eliminate if you can. But yeah, yeah I think chose to ignore them for a while, really. There's one in the modern uh, Blackstone Fortress as a special character. Yeah, the, this is so a, there's still a lot, of, a lot of stuff from Rogue Traders popping back up again these days because yeah. the, the universe is really well established and it all fits in somewhere if you're a bit of creative thinking, perhaps. Uh, yeah. It's not really a problem. So we went from sort of... Uh, encounters uh with like ultramarines and things like that in rogue trader to um fully fleshed out hive fleets and the history of the tyranid uh and imperial sort of uh, goings on and then high fleet kraken um which was awesome to read about as as a, a young lad collecting um and just one, I guess one other thing I noticed was uh, in the codex, you've there's a few army shots and you know like uh, tyranids uh, ambushing imperials, etc. But you never see things like um, the Hormagaunt models or the Ripper Swarm models. Um, you see a lot of the new models, but do you think that was just because at that time that's what had been cast and painted and hadn't gotten around? Oh, to I know it was. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I love this stuff. Uh, yeah. It- model making painting assembly and photography didn't always run on a completely parallel track to uh getting it written and sent off to the printers uh particularly this early because no digital print back then so it was all running things out on galleys and laying it out and taking photos with bromide cameras so it all took a very long time so what you had available to do for photography um it wasn't a guarantee that it was going to be the full miniatures range uh, at, the t- at the point you were doing the book especially the color step color bits because they had to be done earliest um so that the whole process could come together because only part of the book was printed in-, in color as well to save money so you had to have that all sorted out and ready to send off at the same time as the black and white sections to get it printed so and it was more complicated so it was one of the earlier things you did so the you didn't always have the whole range of models. It made it even more fun for playtesting and doing battle reports, of course. But uh, yes, we have three Hortmagort models. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Stuff like that. Because um, it was one of the reasons I, I, t- I started, um, even before this, actually, for this, to collect a, a playtest army of at least decent proxies um all the models or you know where we had like one model just like okay give me 20 of those so we can yep. do some units of them things like that so that we could test with things that were about the right size uh, and so on uh, in our games because you couldn't wait on obviously you couldn't wait on the miniatures to be produced and go down to every metal get painted and photographed and then be able to play with them you know you want to do that while you were writing it preferably so a good segue on, I guess, um, playtesting. Mm. There was a lot of new things that came in with the Tyranny uh, Codex. So um, different targeting rules so that um, people could try and shoot at the big things, which also sort of carried on to the Chaos Codex with different unit types and, and huge things like Bloodthirsters. Um, Tyranny 
Tyranids didn't have strategy cards. They had what we used to call the Tyranid rolly chart. So it was horrific <laughs> things that happened on the way into the battle. Um, how was playtesting these new um, rules? Um, right. And I know Second edition, I'm going to make a dreadful, uh, dreadful ambition here. We were far less focused on balance than it being fun. Basically, yeah. uh, in second edition, that, that was our main focus was it to be fun. Now, unbalanced, too much unbalanced isn't fun by definition, so you have to watch it on that front. But the possibility for wild and wacky things was very much a part of uh, second edition. And because Tyranids kind of lacked from some of that facility in some ways, they didn't have tanks that could go out of control and crash into things and explode and stuff like that. You, you kind of had to uh, insert. Um, some of the randomness, the random eventness in different ways. And doing cards was always difficult because it's just a codex. I mean, yeah, you can put them in the color section and get people to cut them out and all that sort of stuff, but it's not ideal. So one of the things that was kind of cool that I'd always liked in Rogue Trader had been the hallucinogen, like random effect table and things like that. So it was really the the Tyranid Random Events table was inspired by that. And it was also a way, again, sort of like coming from that hive war perspective of total war, planetary war and things like that, of bringing in elements that you couldn't do otherwise to the tabletop, which is the same thing that strategy cards did as well. So it was performing an equivalent function of saying, you know, here's the equivalent of like some orbital bombardment landing at random or something like that. So cool. apologies if they ever ruined any of your games, but I'm guarantee you they made a lot more of them memorable than if it hadn't been there in the first place. Oh man, it was the fun, like hilarious part of the game, especially the dismay on my opponent's faces when something horrific like a, a dreadnought running out of fuel happened and the poor mm. thing was now stuck behind a brick wall. You know, mm. uh, I loved it. It was great. <laughs> well, that was kind of the issue with it. Is it was easy to love as a Tyranid player because it did awful things to your opponent. <laughs> less easy yeah. to love if you're in opposition to it. So I'm extremely I apologize for that. I was a very young designer when I did all this. So well, oh, don't apologize for it. <laughs> I may have perhaps overfocused too much on the Tyranid player having fun at times. Hey. The menace of the Tyranids cannot be underestimated. They are unique in so many respects. Their capacity to mutate and evolve, the biotechnology of their weapons and spacecraft, their gestalt consciousness and their single-minded purpose of being. Because we have never been able to reason with them, our only interaction has been war. Yet think what we could learn from them. They are not all beasts, these creatures. Many are evidently cunning and intelligent. If we could only communicate with them, how both races would benefit. With communication would come mutual understanding and respect. The frontiers of human science would be pushed back. Human and alien could live together in peace and harmony. Records deleted from this point by order of the Commission for Human Purity. Excerpt from the personal log of Genitor Malin. When the pervasive nature of his dangerous theories was uncovered, the janitor was immediately removed from office 
stripped of all his rank and privileges and sentenced to spend the rest of his natural life in the prison Astrofel Penitente. Anyway, we're back. We're, we're, we're all back. here now. Yep. We're looking at Hive there. Tyrants. Hello, Hive Tyrants. <laughs> yeah, so if people who are listening are basically reading along in the codex, uh, we're on page 18, it's the Hive Tyrant, the big uh, HQ of the Tyranids, finally has a model, finally has some beautiful art from Mark Gibbons. Mm. Um, three biomorphs. Totally selling it of like, this is cool. Yes, we believe you, Mark. It's cool. Three biomorphs, yeah. So a lot of flexibility uh, built, built into the idea of it because this was really, you know, your, your, your character for leading the course. We couldn't have characters per se. You couldn't have a space marine captain or something like that. But this guy had to be the equivalent. So there, there was a lot of flexibility built in in terms of the, the different biomorphs he could have and, and chobby weaponry as well, of course, because he was kind yeah. of pinnacle and expected to take a hell of a lot of flack frankly um it was going to be such an obvious target for like every last cannon that could get a line on him but he had to be really tough yeah Hence, it could toughness it could six be a... can't be one shot and so on yeah i mean it has a tendency to be a glass cannon unless people are outfitting it or giving it a bodyguard or uh, you, you know, you'd never it. take it without a voltage field at least in my opinion um, wow, this is going back some, but yeah, you just don't even set foot on the battlefield without some sort of invulnerable save on it. Because I, I was just looking at it, and it's like huh, four plus for my carapace. It's like mm, that's not going to do you any good, is it? Still so, a very formidable creature, um, and yeah, beautiful art. And um, I guess the next thing in the codex is the Carnifex um, classic miniature that's been around for a long time. Fantastic art. Um, very divided community sometimes on whether or not it's the <laughs> ugliest model or the most wonderful. Me, that and Carandris was what hooked me into second edition. Oh, interesting pairing. I saw that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, it is very distinctive. It is extremely distinctive. Um, we know this because you can even scale it down to epic scale. And you can still tell what it is very easily. Yep. It's got that going for it. I was never a huge fan of it, but I didn't really hate it either. Um, it was the main, I think my main problem with it in the Tyranus is that it was limited in that, okay, we've got something that's clearly very tough and it has four scythe arms. What's it going to do? Uh, run into things and attack them with its scythe arms, which is a bit inflexible. Um, so, the main thing here was to make it very, 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 very good at what it did. And as you can see, it's got an absolute chonker of a stat line for it. And of course, once again, you trick it out with biomorphs, you make it regenerate and things like that. Because again, much like the Hive Tyrant, and in many jobs, this is your bodyguard for the Hive Tyrant because you, you make it so threatening that they're too busy shooting the Carnifex or Carnifexes rather than the Hive Tyrant. Um, but yes, it was kind of, Interesting because it was, I think, the first metal miniature that got done after the old plastic Tyranid warriors. So it, it represented a big step in evolutionary terms uh, on the visuals and things like that. Yeah, perfect. Love it. But um, yeah, as you said, it, it's a very uh, role-specific creature. Um, yeah, I mean, we tried. Up. We gave it like, like the bioplasma vomit, so it got something to shoot at you. 
but um, that wasn't really what it was there for. That was the only sort of heavy gun until the Hive Tyrant came out with his Venom Cannon, pretty much. Yeah, and that was the one use for it as well. Is it's like it was something that could actually breach a vehicle at range. Um, because yeah, Tyranid Warriors weren't so blessed until later, basically when we started giving them Venom Cannons, which is this edition, in fact, I believe. Yeah, so next up, Tyranid Warriors, been around for ages. I've managed to collect the ancient first metal ones, as well as mm. the plastics. Um, then they came out with a lot of options, namely the Devourer, um, which has carried through to the current editions, which is a frightful gun. Um, you guys really came up with some disgusting, horrific <laughs> bioweapons. That was all me. I'm going to put my hand up to that. Oh, well, um, the original Flesh Borer, is it? Uh, yep. That dates back to Advanced Space Crusade and kind of set the tone as far as I was concerned. So when I came to, because clearly I needed to diversify the weaponry a lot. And um, so I tried to keep it all thematically in line mm. uh, in terms of it's all hideous things that, you know, hatch out of seeds or worms that burrow into your nervous system and things like that. Yeah, a conical lump of flesh with uh, black-headed worms that if they didn't explode in acid on impact, they burrowed in and then made their way through your nervous system to your brain. And so it basically resulted in, uh, I think, a fear test or something like that if you lost units to it. It was pretty mm -hmm. formidable. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, Tyranid Warriors, I mean, they're... They're great. Um, I find, again, uh, if you sink points into them, give them things like voltage fields and stuff, they can have a bit of staying power. But, um, yeah, people will gun Yeah, I, I really like Tyranid Warriors myself, but they always struggled a little bit because um, they're in a kind of funny midpoint where they're, they're in smallish units and they're, they're quite tough individually, but they're not so mega tough as Hive Tyrants um, to be able to stand up to flak. So... I, I always found you could only really use them if there were enough other big threats around, like Carnifexes and Hive Tyrants. And at, at that point, the, the Tyranid Warriors didn't draw quite so much fire. But at that point, you're starting to run a bit low on numbers. So, And you do yep. need the numbers. Uh, next up, the Lictor. So the Lictor was quite insane when it came out. It had a full page of special rules almost. Uh, yes. Obviously, based on things like Predator, Chameleonic, um, Hunters, uh, a fantastic creature. And when you look through the old pages of things like Tyranid Attack, um, you'd see these gigantic sort of scythed creatures in art, but they weren't really defined as a specific thing yet. So was this a, an evolution of that sort of thing? Um, th this, is, this is all of the Tyranids, I should say as well all of the terms of me and jez goodwin working very closely together um on these i used to go and hang out with him for like at least an hour a day uh, on average and we'd talk about all kinds of stuff and tyrannies was a lot and he did uh, a number of like concept sketches which are what stepped forward into the, like the hive tyrant uh and evolved tyrannid warriors a little bit more but one of them was a lictor uh well what, we, what he called the lictor uh, which we adopted because it was a fantastic name and helped fit in with the Carnifex Lictor principle. Yep. And that was conceived of as, as being like a, a specialist um, Tyranid warrior, basically. And the idea was to get something that was like absolutely 100% the sort of thing that you get in a horror movie, uh, like running around a base somewhere, picking people off 
and murdering individuals. Hence, it's its suite of capabilities, which, as you rightly point out, does extend to a full page. And, you know, it's got flesh hooks for grabbing people with or clambering about with, and it can eat people's brains and get their memories, and, of course, it can turn itself invisible. And overall, this has been a tremendous step forward, I, I think, for Tyranid Kind to have that kind of thing. Because much like, I mean, we talked about um, the random events table and how that sets the, the tone and the flavour for Tyranids. And this is one of those units that genuinely does as well. Uh, in the, it is an individual unit, uh, but it's not a character per se, but it's it's got a really specialised function. And yeah, I always like them. I always used to use one or possibly two of them personally because um, they don't half mess with people. All those people that like taking heavy weapons and standing at the back in particular. Um, they get a, a visit from Mr. Lichter early on and after that they're trying to set overwatch pointing in all directions and all kinds of hilarious stuff. So good fun to be had by all really. Yeah, you could set up some really nasty uh, strategies. If you manage to psychic screen, say, a couple of Eldar psychers, you could pop this guy out to finish them off as they rolled around on the ground screaming. Yeah, he was great as a literal assassin as well for going after characters. Um, so just general backfield wonder. Uh, it was the Lictor, as far as I was concerned, well worth the price of entry. Awesome. And relatively simple to use as well. Uh, you know, you got a lot out of him without having to be very clever, frankly. Okay, what we've got next? Zoanthropes. That was another thing. Another sort of like really weird specialised uh, Tyranid Warrior idea. Now, Jez's idea was for the floaty brain that we got later. Um, yep. But the in this edition, uh, it was more far more of a, like a Tyranid Warrior with a giant head, basically, as you can see from the illustration. And Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, this was a way of giving heavy weapons in effect to the Tyranids, but which weren't heavy weapons. Because even though we'd, uh, I added in the, the, the Venom Cannon and so on, they weren't spectacular as, as heavy weapons or anything like that. They were, they were just sort of like, it's okay, it's a, an auto cannon with some bonuses, or it's a last cannon with some bonuses. Uh, Zoanthropes were the things that were, ah, no, I melt you with my brain bolt, uh, especially vehicles. So they're, they're kind of vehicle hunters more than anything else, if I remember rightly. And a massive yeah. pain in the ass for the opposing... Uh, just like everything in the Tyranids actually is a massive pain in the ass, but these guys particularly, because they're one of these things you can't let them live. Um, that was always my opinion about it. I was always surprised if people didn't kill Zoanthropes at the first opportunity, because the amount of damage they could output was outrageous. You could also... Not only did they help add to the pool of psychic cards that you're drawing from, but um, you could use them as a almost like a, a threat so that your opponent would hopefully use demonic attack on them and not your hive tyrant. Um, yeah. Even yeah. though the hive tyrant's like a level four psyker, it's it's still a chance that you can just lose. Yeah, your it, it was HP. always it was always a bit of a dangerous game to play in second edition with a psyker just to have one powerful psyker. Because there, yeah. there were, you know, bad things could happen to you. So yeah, they were also there to help spread the pain a little bit on that front. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, so Termagants, uh, the old hunter slayer, evolved, got some new weapons. Um, some were really, really cool. Especially, I like the spike rifle. I never got to use the web strangler enough, um, but yeah. I can change that now since collecting some. 
Um, yeah, I think uh, great you, you could just take some guys with web stranglers, yeah. couldn't you? Because I thought that yeah, was the yeah. dirty thing, is you just took a, a few, so they, they survived magically until they got close enough to use them. And yeah, they were <laughs> nasty. Um, yeah, they, I, because you have a lot of big top-end stuff, you know, you need some little gribbly stuff as well to uh, keep the opposition honest, basically, in that they, if they invest too much into just heavy weapons to take out the big guys, then the little guys will crawl up their asses basically so that's what these guys were about but they were mainly about being cheap yeah you could take 16 basic termagants uh for i think 96 points you'd have to wipe out the whole lot to get a victory point uh with synapse around it meant that that could actually be tricky for your opponent to do yeah so. they, they just weren't going away and you know they bite your ankles and stuff like that in practice though i found that they generally it seemed like in most people's armors they eventually got replaced by hormigons instead because they were faster yeah. uh, and just exchanging fire when you've got crappy little guns is, is never a, a winning strategy when you can be running up there and sticking spikes into them so ripper swarms kind of similar kind of similar again just just a meat shield really uh but enough of a meat shield that if they get up to you then they're kind of a problem but mainly there to be cheap yeah i mean i guess uh, again from community questions and and just talking back and forth um the complaints were that they were too slow um they ate your precious um terrain, terrain. <laughs> yeah we yeah. need that guys yes but they they looked really cool <laughs> yeah the, like. again they were kind of in there more as a character piece than to be an effective unit choice per se i mean more power to people who go like i'm just going to take nothing but ripper swarms which is an interesting experiment but yeah they, they were kind of freebie and eventually when we did plastics as well they, they were framed up so that you you got some rippers on every frame just yep. in the corner of the frame so you could basically build up swarms of rippers for free you didn't even have to spend real worth world money on them so yeah probably a bit too slow in retrospect that it wouldn't have hurt to make them a little bit quicker and maybe the consume thing could have been the, an optional rather than yeah we just eat everything in the way. Um, but eh, what do you what do you want? They're, they're, I guess it also worms. helped um, you use your tyranid squigs if you had them. They weren't suddenly useless. You you could just chuck yeah. Them well, in. yeah, it was a nod to that as well. I mean, yeah. we, we changed them to be looking at a bit more um, you know tremors basically yeah. uh, in general or or like you know under evolved tyranids with little carapaces on them but it was a nod back towards having swarms and yeah i say they have their uses but really in there more for the character than anything else for the movie sort of thing okay. of like oh no what's this great what's film travis <laughs> it is and again an inspiration uh you know i'd be lying if i didn't say tremors was an inspiration for the tyranids there you go that's awesome um okay, gargoyles yeah, this is again this is a jazz sketching up alternate uh, hunter slayers alternate termagants you know what would you do with it if you could change it into like a batty thing instead uh, which gets you to the gargoyle and with also a yeah. nod back to that early adrian smith art as well from advanced space crusader yeah there was some flappy everything together. things flying around in those pictures yeah, and, and the, the very Geiger-esque of like, you know, combining hands and fingers together into tubes and faces and moors and orifices, that kind of stuff um, finds a home in here, uh, particularly well shown in the artwork there. So, you know why yes. So great. 
Mm. Super duper handy to have. And again, these are part of one of one of the reasons that termagants and fell out of favour, I suspect, is because I say you either took hormigons or you took gargoyles or both. Because they could both do the termagants job, but a bit better. Slightly more expensive, granted, but um just way more problematic. <laughs> Yeah, they were very top-heavy model-wise, so if you bump one yeah. over, they might snap. Um, <laughs> but they were the perfect counters to jet bikes because jet bikes were open-topped, and then suddenly you're getting hit twice automatically from this flame. It had the potential to kill the Guardian inside, and then suddenly the jet bikes, which were wiping you out, had a counter. So uh, backline mortar, artillery, things like that, suddenly needed to be guarded from these little buggers. So they were great. And Hormigaunts, um, again, big metal model, tipped over a lot. Yeah, they were oh, very, very like, oh, God. Yeah, they want to fall over all the time. The most cunning one was to take the lowest pair of arms and just put them down a little bit so that they, they just pinned it, you know, kept it propped up. Yeah, or coins on the base or, or whatever it took, but they were, they were fantastic once they hit into combat. They were so annoying. I loved them. Yeah, they, 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 there was something just perfect about their, their kind of stat line um, that made them, yeah, a real problem uh, when they go to comic. Again, you know, they're units of 16, if I remember rightly, you could have. So enormous, and they were so quick, so ridiculously quick um, that, again, you've basically got maybe one shot at shooting them on the way in. And if you don't take it, they're going to be on you next turn. So there, there was something that could run across the table with a chance of success. And if you poke your nose out, they could be on you on turn one. So, yes, yes, dear old Hormagaunts. One of those things that just works sort of thing. Very simple. As you can see, barely half a page of rules. One special rule. But uh, yeah. and they just work off the stat lines. Yeah, I, I mean... Clever. It was just another thing that you could stop a turn or two of shooting because these things were in your face while all your big stuff lumbered up. So, yeah, great, great unit. Um, next up is a biovore. So finally, there was some sort of artillery. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. This is this is like taking a trip through my past sins. Um, yeah, biovores, uh, biovores again. Yeah, an artillery equivalent, um, so that you had an option for hitting things in the backfield without having to like run over there, basically. So. The, the the trick with these though is that they don't fire shells or anything like that. They drop spore mines on the opposing side, which are just drift around. They don't necessarily blow up until they hit something. Which means that these things are a gigantic pain in the ass. Cause they get a launch off, they drop several mines, if I remember rightly, at once, don't they? Uh just one, but um if you oh, killed them, one? all the mines drifted out, which is really funny. <laughs> yeah and if you kill the mine it goes off so yeah yeah it, it, again all about complicating things in people's backfield between these and lictors and gargoyles uh it wasn't a safe place to be because the spore mines are really nasty as i recall particularly nasty against vehicles and things like that so, yeah and you could take um uh units of spore mines on their own as well just to mm. basically create no-go zones i guess um, oh that's where they, i'm getting it from because i would habitually do that i'd actually take several spore mines to start with uh, to start just drifting them around the place and then fire biovores on top of that so that it was a spore mine rich environment basically um which often paid dividends because it, it 
it's one of these things that makes the opposing player so paranoid because they're like, oh, can't go there because the spore mine. Oh, can't go there because the spore mine. That they're so busy thinking about that that they've got gene stealers eating them before they know it. Yeah, the fantastic uh, anti-bike um, uh, machine too, because uh, if you manage to penetrate but not blow up the vehicle, then it would start a rot that would get in, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, it could cause a lot of problems. Um, and I guess spore mines became a big thing in the Tyranid army, um, especially like Battlefleet Gothic, where you had units uh, flanked by mines instead of the traditional shields and things like that. So did you just like take sort of earlier mycetic spawn ideas and just run with that? Yeah, it, it kind of it kind of came from there. The, the the end of the day, turns are a space going species. So you know they yeah. live in space. Um, so the things that you see running around on the ground with legs or wings or crawling, they're kind of the exceptions. The, the these things actually live in space, so they're going to have endless amounts of small. Uh, decreasing sizes of ships right down to you know drones and spore mines and mycetic spores and stuff coming off the uh the the actual hive ships themselves uh yeah which we did a lot with when we got into battlefleet gothic it, it was kind of around from space fleet days though there were spore mines yeah. out there uh which is where these came from the the ones for this list they, they were actually space fleet spore mines just reused um at a completely different scale uh, eventually we make got some bigger ones i think but again they, we we had a lot of fun with them in terms of uh these anamycetic spores about the the kind of like the, the horror story of being invaded by tyranids and having these things drifting around through your na your neighborhood you know sort of day of the triffid wise because they're they're not in themselves dangerous until you get close enough to them but just disturbing things to have around oh the old yeah. gene stealer our old friend <laughs> Yeah, gene stealers. I mean, what can be said that hasn't already been said, but um, they've been around for forever in, in yes. everything. There, These were my litmus test for whether or not something was badass because, you know, you'd stack up the avatar or the bloodthirster or whatever, and it was how All many right. gene can it Can it stand up to how many gene stealers? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, it wasn't a bad test. I mean, because uh, their, their stat line, which basically got carried forward, is just ridiculously high but you know they were firmly rooted in space hulk where one gene stealer was entirely likely to kill a terminator if it could get to it in close combat so that was always kind of the acid test of like a gene stealer should be able to kill a terminator easily in hand-to-hand -hand combat um, exceptions made for he's a super good terminator he's got lightning claws whatever so they, they kind of start from there, which does mean that they've got an outrageous stat line uh, and they're very expensive, which was always the big downside to them in a Tyranid army, in my opinion. I didn't use them very often myself because they, they just, between being expensive, not that hard to kill, they got targeted like 1-0. So they, they very rarely got to their uh, destination in, without a lot of help, basically. Yeah. Um, so, but there again, I say readily available and a great way of juicing any Tyranid army, you know, put some gene stealers in it and it's a major threat. I don't care who you are. Uh, if you've got a unit of gene stealers or two running around. And that was one of the keys as well. If you're going to use one unit, use two because one of them will get aced, but then the other one will probably do the job on its own, frankly. Which lead on to gene stealer cults. Yeah, which is a hangover um, from a very early white dwarf list for Rogue Trader. 
and you know supplemental material around space hulk uh, which talked about gene stealers and gene stealer hybrids specifically patriarchs and so on so we, we dutifully carried that forward into here um, as an alternate kind of tyrannid army that you could take in effect some of the best fluff, I, in my opinion, of course, has come out. Well, they, they, they were very Fox. well kind of like rounded out because they've been around for a while and, and had various different things written about them. Yeah, um, extremely insidious. Extremely insidious. And again, they're, they're a great narrative tool as well. The, the fact they appear in so many stories uh, like Black Library novels and things like that. Because the, the difficulty with the Turin is that you get, narratively speaking, is, you know, it's an enormous high fleet of gigantic bio ships that invade you and eats your entire world there's not a great story there apart from the you know getting buried under mycetic stores spores uh, horror stories or being chased around by a or what have you whereas yeah gene stories they can do the whole um scheming and plotting and you know rebelling side of things which works well with inquisitors and all the rest of it so they're, they're, they're a great boon well worth keeping in weirdly though um I noticed one of your questions was sort of like, oh, you know, that putting them in the second edition codex you know, consigned them to oblivion for a long time thereafter because they just got absorbed into the Tyranids. To be honest, they would have been gone completely by now if we hadn't have done that because uh, some people at the studio didn't like Gene Steeler cults. Uh, we had to kind of fight to get them in in the first place. Yeah, that's good insight. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why they didn't really appear in third edition at all. Yeah, it took until what many decades later. Yeah, it was only a couple of years ago <laughs> they relaunched them. Yeah, it's more than a couple. I think now you might be horrified. Yeah, true, it. true. Um, but it is comparatively recent, and from what I've seen, they've done an absolutely baller job. All kinds of different exciting stuff uh, based off like doing a rebellion force because they're, they're what they're in. What they are is an interesting rebel force rather than yep. just sort of like, oh, we've been infected by chaos and now we're going to turn against the emperor or we've been infected by communism or something. These guys have been infected by, you know, a genuine creeping um, alien intellect. Very, again, it, it's all the classic 50s um, fear-mongering films about the spread of alien ideas, um, you know, basically allegories about communism at the time, which... Um, are embodied in the the gene stealer cult. So yes, look at all that, all that fiction we can get out of them. So some very brightly coloured Carlifaxes. Uh, yeah, just everything. scrolling past all the the beautifully painted models. Um, mm. Yeah, the Hive Tyrant, the Carnifex, uh, just so iconic. Um, you guys jazz them up a bit, obviously, for some of the the new photos for this codex. Those Carnifexes with different coloured heads. Um, mm. but the bodies remain uniform which i always thought was really cool um yeah unfortunately those lehman russes have, have had it they're cooked um yeah the, pretty much the, the maps of influence as well of where tyranids had sort of come into it um were always interesting yeah, they're over on the next page aren't they because it was yeah. like the whole imperium had shown that this big inroads um yeah I always like maps and codexes to give some sense of sort of like just place and direction, uh, even though it's a bit of a nonsense when you're talking about an entire galaxy, but it, it helps with the visualization. So um, 
and also to try and pile on this idea that um, there have been successive waves. There wasn't just one Tyranid High Fleet, um, which was kind of to break down on that idea in an advanced space crusade where there was just less tsunami of Tyranids and that would be it. They would eat the entire galaxy. It's like, well, we need to break that down a bit, really, don't we? So let's have them coming in in waves, in effect, uh, which you know, the Imperium being the Imperium dubs these you know, different ponderous titles, but it's just the next wave of Tyranids coming in, basically. And, and did you ever answer the question of what the Barnassus incident was? Nope. No, not to my <laughs> knowledge. It may have been answered, um, but I, <laughs> I no. remember ages ago. I, I, again, we, we would habitually drop stuff like that all over the place because <laughs> we knew that then we could come back to it later and go like, ah, okay, here's a White Dwarf article or whatever, or a scenario or something. But yeah, we'd habitually put all kinds of things into, you know, the evolution of such and such and things like that. Very cool. You could always come back and develop it later. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was just good. It was a good thing to do. And it was very 40K as well. It's a historical thing as well. When, when you read um, history of whatever, Punic Wars, they'll tend to refer off to other things like you, obviously you would know about it, you know. Um, and it was kind of capturing a bit of that sense as well of like history was bigger than what you're reading right now and what this is about. There are other things that have happened, but we're not even going to get into that right now. Hey, here we go. Yes. I guess um, the Codex also introduced um, new missions, Tyranid specific ones. Um, the most difficult being, in my opinion, Tyranid Attack, where you had to wipe out every single one of your opponent's um, models to win hmm. um, but but yeah didn't you get reinforcements on that one oh though? yeah you just dribbled yeah. everything back in as soon as you could form a squad yeah. or whatever just toss yeah. it back in it 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 was challenging and it was fun and um, I guess exhausting for some people <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> probably was, I mean it was supposed to be you know a, a last stand Rourke's drift kind of a scenario um, so yeah, it worked. Yeah. The endless waves of tyrannies. So those were the times that you were glad that you bought like cheap units that were easy to wipe out because they could just come straight back. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, obviously, we went over the um, event tables, uh, but they're listed in the codex, which is great. Um, yeah, I can't uh, feel chuffed enough about those. They're always so fun. <laughs> um, and I guess the other thing I wanted to mention was um, the bioweapons we've gone over. They're fantastic. Um, they really kept with the theme and a lot of them have just carried on through and they've evolved a little bit here and there. Um, unfortunately, they got rid of the flame spurt, which sucks, but um, what can you do? Um, biomorphs, they were essentially the hot thing in this codex because suddenly you could tool up your high firing, your kind effects, et cetera, to be tougher or do specific things. Couldn't have war gear before this. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's what they are. They're war gear. Yeah. Um, but they're kind of pernicious as war gear because weirdly in the Syrian army, because they're they're effectively the war gear choice, they're also an open option for lots of other things like Tyranid Warriors, which is quite interesting. So they, they tend to individually, yeah, that's not, I was going to say they individually don't necessarily do a lot, but uh, once you start combining them, they get quite strong. But there are some standout ones, to be fair, that, um, like I say, Voltage Feel being the classic one. I never I think... personally felt that regeneration was worth it, but a lot of people no. like to take it. 
Richard from Ring and Battle swears by the optic membranes. And honestly, yeah, he's, he's, he's got something going there because all it takes is a flash from a conversion field or something or photon flare and, and everyone's buggered um, in your entire Tyranid army. So it's something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a question of, you know, how much you want to throw at it because this is the other thing is you could like double the cost of your hive tyrant with biomorphs if you weren't careful um so it it was worth taking some cheap ones and it was like well which ones are the cheap ones that are worth it oh yeah there we go like bioplasma attack for example 40 points per model (coughs) and so on and then um another thing richard also mentioned was enhanced sensors are great because suddenly that assassin who wants to sneak up and throw a vortex grenade at you can't really do that anymore if it's on your high fire or, or whatnot. yeah ironically it was because i think considering the warriors like have one biomorph or something yep. like that yeah yeah and that was one of the, the reasons to big turn into warriors actually it was like you know bring some like lowly ones not particularly equipped or anything like that but with enhanced sensors um was kind of worthwhile Though, if I remember right, I think the Lictor might have done a similar job as well. I think that had enhanced sensors. Oh, there it is. One point for your optic membrane. Yeah, but Voltage Field, it did everything. It gave you plus one strength. It could, uh, if you got hit, it could burn out enemy uh, uh, units, fields, things like that. It was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that if you're ever playing. And all all for only 20 points, which is why I I tended to, I think, actually, to be fair, I I usually took the Warp Field for the hive tyrant um because you don't want to mess around but yeah the voltage field was such a bargain and again 200 warriors with the voltage field was suddenly a giant pain in the ass yeah um, <laughs> bone swords voltage field ha 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 um and again easy to ignore because they're not shooting at you and 200 warriors usually shoot at you which is why they draw fire back um but if they get up to you with voltage fields and bone swords they're actually lethal but that goes for so much of the tournament, in case you haven't figured that out by now. Exactly. And another thing was uh, the Tyranid swarm selection, the percentages of what you could take were wildly different from other armies. You could take 50% for individuals, which was, you know, a normal thing, 25% broods, but support. You could take 50% of your army could be support, um, mm. which is a big deal. Um, so yeah, you could feel. Yeah, well, they didn't have a lot of support options um, overall. Correct. Uh, and oh, what you do right. have is like Carnifex is super expensive, Spore Mites yep. super cheap, and Biovores. So uh, you didn't have an awful lot of options, and it was mainly in there to allow people to have um, massed Carnifex armies. It was why it's fifty percent. Because if it was lower than that, you couldn't really fit too many Carnifexes in. Uh, whereas at 50%, obviously, as long as you don't go mad with them, um, you could still get a decent number of Carnifexes into a like 1,500-point army. Yeah, and then we come to the uh, Gene Stealer cult list. I mean, I've had a lot of fun with it myself. Um, you can take uh, Chaos Allies, which was really fun, um, and, of course, you get you have an agreement with your opponent and you can take really fun things like chaos cultists and beastmen and, and stuff like that. And uh, mm. sort of echo what was going on in rogue trader where you could have gene stealer cultists with corn, you know, symbols, worshippers, etc. Yeah. It was a big grab bag cult army really. I mean, we, we hadn't done a chaos cult army per se either. 
Um, so it was just an opportunity to do cults of any stripe you wanted overall. Yeah, good fun. And I guess um, the tactics of the Tyranids, uh, in the end, like you, you can have a read of this. It had a lot of good info in it, um, in the Codex itself. But when the Codex first came out, I, I think a lot of people were really sort of uh, having to get quite a few games in before they found out what worked and what worked against their opponents. And mm. one thing I found was Tyranids were so strange and weird. Uh, your opponent had would struggle with finding out what the hell's going on in your army and that would be to your advantage as well. Yeah, the, the, well, that plus the biomorphs, when there was a certain variability to the army of like, they, they, it was very hard to know what was going to be coming down the pipe at you uh, when you were facing a Tyranid army. Plus the, the, you know, the various factors of the, the random events table screwing up whatever plan you had. So, it was an army that you needed to be quite adaptable to fight against. Um, difficult army to use in many re regards because it, it very very much works in like self-supporting, well, rather not self-supporting, mutually supporting elements. Um, so part of learning to use it is to learn to use so like several different things to, to get to the same thing. Classic example being like, you could take four units of gene stealers, certainly, and if they get to your enemy, then they will destroy them. But the chances are they won't get there because you don't have enough other supporting elements. So the battle cannons will be raining fire upon them and all the rest of it. So you, you kind of have to present this sort of like multi-threat environment of, of which some bits would start getting through, then the cracks would appear and more things would get through. So it, it wasn't on the surface very easy to use because it could be knocked apart fairly easily by enough big weaponry anyway or the occasional rogue vortex and things like that so um, yes uh, not the easiest day on me in the world to get to the snow but once you knew it it was absolutely deadly yeah, it, it was my experience of it i have to agree that that and the chaos codex uh brutal brutal forces to play against uh, but, you know, to be fair, uh, we were coming up against Eldar, which were just ridiculously overpowered, in my opinion. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, it's one of the things you can say about uh, second edition codex. There's not many codexes you, where you can go like, oh, these guys are really weak source. You know, they don't really hold the mustard. It's like every one of them is brutal in their own way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Even I'm orcs. Sure somebody, somebody can rush to correct me. Yeah, even orcs. Um, when it comes to second edition codexes, but I think there was none of them that I ever thought of as being a pushover. Yeah. Uh, just based on what their army was like. Um, no, none of them. I was going to say Space Marines for a minute there, but no, not even them, actually. <laughs> um, was there anything that you would have cut out or was going to be in the codex but just um, didn't, didn't make it? Um, for second edition? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, we we were scrambling to try and include as many things as possible because you've got to remember Tyranids hadn't really been hugely developed. I mean, we'd done that White, White Dwarf Army list and, you know, there'd been Space Hulk and Advanced Space Crusade, but it, it was still a, a matter of taking the elements and, okay, we were getting to actually add some new units here uh, to the budget as it's sort of like, we can have this many new units. But I don't remember anything that fell by the wayside um at that point we didn't get to do anything with larger vehicles which we kind of discussed but th there was nothing really an epic that felt 
strong enough to bring across everything that was good, like the Harridan and stuff like that, were too big really to bring in second edition, or so we thought at the time. Um, so outside of sort of like Brood Brothers in tanks and stuff like that, there wasn't any prospect for doing vehicles for them. But no, we, we basically went through everything, because I say it's a weird place because it was kind of developed very close on the heels and sort of in parallel with um, Hive War for Epic, uh, which is why, you know, the Epic Tyranid frame at that time has got things like it's got a lictor on it, it's got gargoyles on it and things like that, because the designs were already around um, quite a long way in advance of when we actually did the second edition codex, because you've got to remember, this is one of the last codexes we did over the course of the uh, of second edition. So, um, yeah, we just took everything we had on hand and rammed it in the book. I was awesome. happy that we actually managed to get some models made for it because that was by no means a guarantee in those days. And we actually got a, a decent-ish range out of this one. Well, definitely uh, hooked me into the, the game, that's for sure. Um, we got a whole heap of questions from the community uh, and... Uh, I'll probably get um, Josh to pop in here because he's collated um, yeah, a, a few out of hundreds. Yep. Um, yeah, again, Andy, thanks very much for coming on, mate, today to talk to Ben and us about um, Tyranids. And we've got a few questions from our community members as well. Um, so Brandy Dog, he asks, who will eventually conquer the galaxy? Will it be Tyranids or Chaos, do you think? I don't know overall. I don't think anybody will conquer the galaxy in that fashion i think it's locked into an eternal future of warfare between whatever's there because that also just ignores necrons entirely and you can't um let alone the other forces that may yet be revealed so i don't think anybody's going to conquer the galaxy fair enough mate that's a, that's a good answer um steve quinn also asked what was the idea behind the ripper swarms from a game point they move slower than the rest of the army and eat cover. So effectively, effectively they only really are your own cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of this is, we, we touched on this, they're, they're basically there to be cinematic uh, more than anything else and effectively almost free as uh, an extra character thing. In retrospect, yeah, maybe they could have moved a bit faster. Uh, maybe they could have not eaten cover if you didn't want them to or something like that. But I think you also have to look at them in context of scenarios like the Tyranid attack scenario, where if you put enough Ripper Swarms in there, uh, they will have a detrimental effect on your opponent because over the course of the game, they will eat all of their cover. So horses for courses sort of a thing. But yeah, not the most brilliant unit in the universe. I'll grant you that. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, ben Dalgleish asks, when Tyranids were first envisioned, did you ever think it would be it would get to the stage that they are now in terms of law and model types, i.e. the Nids will eventually devour the entire galaxy or the Hive Tyrant Guard made from the Space Marine DNA? Yes, absolutely. I, me and Jez talked about Tyranids a lot and their potential and how there could be uh, an interesting extra factor to throw into the universe as something genuinely alien. W one of the things that uh, people have mentioned before is like, oh, you know, in Rogue Trader, Tyranids in there, they've, they've got like Balkans, they've got bio-Balkans and biopower armor and things like that. That would have been more interesting to do. I disagree. 
I strongly disagree that it would be more interesting to do. We already have factions using bolt guns and power armor and all the rest of it. To have somebody, something that was genuinely an, an alien force that evolved over time, which is ironically, um, because you put out new miniatures and do new stuff, they have them. And they're one of the few races in 40k that you can say has kind of like literally embraced that and become more diverse and, and like grown into their ranges and uh, evolved in a very real fashion over time. And I find that immensely pleasing to my own eyes. So maybe I was wrong. Maybe they will conquer the galaxy one day because they'll just become cooler than everything else in it. Cool. Uh, Mark Buckley also asked, does Andy feel that some of the Tyranid artwork and minis were a bit cartoony compared to the alien-like horror that the background and rules felt like? Um, some, of it didn't, uh, some of it I don't like. I, I'm not fond of the Zoanthrope in second edition, for example. Uh, I much prefer the, the floaty brain case um, edition of it. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the Khan effects in itself. I say it's kind of interesting, but what do you do with that? As I mentioned, uh, it can't go a lot of places. Didn't seem it was like a, a very specialized evolution in my eyes all the time. But it was the dreadnought in effect, so it was kind of setting the setting the speed for everything else that was dreadnought sized in some ways, and I didn't like that. But overall, um, no, I, I felt that the the artwork did a good cut. Did a good case of conveying the alien horror uh, enough of it. There, there was a huge temptation to slide down the route hugely into, you know, alien, Kaika, stuff like that. It's, it's obviously it was always an inspiration. It was an inspiration behind Space Hulk and so on. Um, but I'm kind of glad it didn't go too far down that route because Geiger is Geiger at the end of the day. That's alien, and the, these aren't supposed to be alien per se. They're, they're supposed to plug into that same sort of theory, that whole evolutionary discourse on what happens to uh, a race when they can evolve as they need to. But uh, yeah, you don't want to literally go down the Geiger route. That's Geiger. No, fair enough, mate. I, I thought the uh, Mark Gibbons artwork is very evocative. And Me very too. Yeah, so I think they're great. Uh, Marcel Josh asks, why no limousines anymore? Like, I think he means for the, um, the Gene Steeler cults. Um, because they, they didn't make one. There was no model for it. And really, by second edition, it was already kind of a rule that you didn't put stuff in the codex unless there was either a model for it or a reasonable plan to make a model or it could be directly converted from existing models. Limousines, nothing like them existed anywhere in the Games Workshop range. So, yeah, you could go to a, a toy store or something like that and find a car and convert it and things like that. But we weren't really in the trade of um, sending people to Toys R Us to go and buy their models. So that was basically something that you, you'd cover in a white dwarf or a journal article or something like that. You don't put it in the main codex, verboten. So that's why they disappeared. Also in second edition, it, it wasn't a small thing to put a vehicle in. You know, you had to do its own little data facts and its own damage tables and all the rest of it, uh, which we did do eventually, as I say, I think in the journal at some point. But um, it, it was a reasonable sort of commission of resources towards something that wasn't going to exist and people couldn't buy it. They could only make their own. And hence, it didn't make the cut for the uh, the codex itself. Cool. Okay. 
Uh, Wazgob asks, how did you manage the translation of Tyranids from the 40K into Epic? Were there, were there balance issues, et cetera, going from skirmish to large scale? Um, not really. As I say, I can't remember the exact sequence, but I feel like I actually did the stuff on Hive War before we did the second edition codex. So it was far more of a sort of like being able to exercise that theory about having mutually supporting elements on a large scale before rendering it down to a smaller scale. Um, so no, it wasn't it wasn't problematic. It was it was good actually to exercise them at both levels. I mean, one thing that we discovered through that was that the slug tanks and stuff like that we put into Hive War, yeah, they they didn't really do much for you overall. They were tanks that looked like slugs. Um, and as much as I personally like that, I pushed for those to go in. Uh, they didn't have legs. Uh, sorry, unconscious pun there. Um, in the long term, so um, they they were a bit of a bust, and we kind of didn't really touch on them when we came to do second edition. I know that um, over in the US, Armorcast made some like twenty eight mil scale um, epic slug tanks and so on all the Malefaxes and Haraspexes and stuff like that, but we never really had any prospect of putting them into uh, second edition as, as a real edition. It was all about the infantry types. That, that, that works perfectly into the next question from Dingleson because he asked exactly that question. What was the story behind the armor cast Tyranids uh, with the Haraspex and Malefactor and all those other vehicles? Were there something that the design studio felt the codex was missing after release in terms <laughs> of Support, or was it just more of an opportunity to have more models sculpted or were the designs you not even involved at all uh to the best of my knowledge i don't know what went off there i, I think armorcast had some kind of a license i didn't know anything about it personally uh they came as a complete surprise to me and yeah like i say there, there was no intention of, of including them in the the codex because we weren't doing slug tanks uh, so I, I think they would be more being opportunistic of going like, because they, they did this with a lot of stuff that was in the epic scale and wasn't in uh, second edition 40k. Uh, it wasn't just slug tanks. It was all kinds of things that they, they did upscaled, basically. Um, and, you know, God bless them. They want to play with those sort of things, but they, they weren't part of the official range. And so they weren't supported as part of the official range. Yeah, Armacast is a funny one, eh? Because, like, you know, we, we, I remember seeing those in the 90s, you know, people ordering stuff from uh, the US uh, through mm. mail to purchase mm. these big resin kits. And then they would, mm. they would actually have would actually have rules and everything to use them in your game. So it's a really, I'd, yeah, I'd like to investigate that more as to, you know, who made the decision as to, yes, we'll give them the license to make these properties based on our IP and give them the rules and who was doing that and that kind of thing. Because it's, uh, you got to remember the world was a much more of a loosey-goosey place back then. Um, the term intellectual property is not one I heard until about 1998, I think. Um, and we're talking early 90s here. So it's entirely possible that they spontaneously started making them on their own and then effectively got a, a semi-license of some sort out of workshop afterwards. I really don't know what went down with that. Overall. Yeah, that's... Yes. yes, they had rules as well. I had nothing to do with those. Oh. Uh, they just wrote their own thing. So they, 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 as far as I was concerned, they did their own thing. And it was nothing to do with the, the mainstream 40K. Uh, it's what these days I've put down as being like a, a fan service kind of a thing. 
yeah. you know, they'd be three D printing them and so on and publishing their rules, which I say I have no problem with, but it wasn't part of the main business as far as I was concerned. Cool. And sorry, Ben, were you going to say something, mate? Oh, I was just going to say, I think Andy's um, quite spot on there. They, you're both right. They they got sort of like a temporary license, et cetera. And then um, I think Armacast sort of um, turned into Forge World in the UK. So whatever license they may have had might have dropped off, but there's a lot of history there and you probably have to do a whole episode on that. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to pursue that definitely because the Forge World that Games Workshop has now has got no relationship to old Armacast or, yep. and again, they call themselves Forge World for a time as I understood it. So, oh, right. yeah, I don't know anything about that, man. Nothing to do with that. I just write the rules, you know, licensing and other people doing other stuff and other continents. <laughs> uh, Simon Hildreth asks, what changes would you make to the codex, like the second edition codex, if you had a chance? I think we sort of touched on that before as well. Changes I'd make to it. Yeah. Um, I'd tone some things down a bit, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I'd turn, tone down that... Um, random events table somewhat um certainly give it a review given the the benefit of another 20 something years of balance looking through the stats as we were doing just then there, there are some things i mean if i'm honest the spore mines the biovores are probably a bit over over tuned um zone throats definitely are I'd probably try and help Turinid Warriors a bit more, though, as I say, they, they always occupied a really odd spot uh, and struggled with it a little bit, but I always liked them. So that was like an eternal problem that went on for another edition for me. But overall, overall, um, no, there's not a great deal I'd change about it. Uh, I'd, I'd tweak the balance here in a few places and stuff like that. Basically try and make sure the opposition got to have more fun. Um, I was guilty of this in all of my second edition codexes where it was great fun to run the army that the codex was about it wasn't necessarily great fun to be on the on the receiving end of it although like i say it was a bit mutually assured destruction back then with second edition codexes like that anyway but it might have been nice if as well as the, the sort of like horror movie aspects of it there were some of the horror movie tropes about how you fend off the tyranny invasion like oh they're all vulnerable to salt Quick, man, salt on your bullets, get plus one strength, something like that, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Analyze enough goop and you get some sort of bonus against them, I don't know. Um, which possibly shouldn't have lived in the Tyranny Codex itself, but should have lived in some of the other ones. I don't know. We didn't have quite the, the, the link together thinking that we did by the time we did third edition. When we were doing second edition, it was very much like, here's your codex, go off and write it. Um, whereas we, we actually it's communicated a lot more about how we handle the codexes when we did third. So that that's, I think, what I try and do is, is in retrospect, um, tone things down a bit, try and make it more of a joint experience. You know, maybe you have the first few turns where the turners don't even show up. You know, all you've got to worry about is Ripper Swarms and Lictors running around or something like that. And then you introduce the Tyranid Invasion. I don't know. I love, I love that idea. That's a cool concept. I like that. It's cool. Um, Marco Stephenson also asked, Jez Gulum's drawings from the period were amazing, but his designs didn't translate so well into the miniatures. Were they deliberately toned down or was, the, was it just because uh, of practical limitations, do you think? 
some of it was practical limitations of metal. Uh, I mean, you'll note that they all translated fantastically into plastic when we ended up doing those in the next edition. Um, metal is, you know, we, we talked about some of the problems with like metal gargoyles and metal hormigons. So those designs didn't work great as metal miniatures in the end. But the other factor is it wasn't just making them. They, they got formed out to some less experienced miniature designers. We'll just leave it at that, shall we? Um, for whatever reasons that the management at the studio felt the need to give them turnus to do at the time. There was a kind of a bit of a push to try and get the miniatures designers to try different things and maybe find something that would be their, you know, best range to work on and things like that, which didn't always have happy results. Uh, the early Necrons kind of fell in, fell into the same trap as well of like, oh, there's some interesting space columns. And yeah, they're kind of cool, those early Necrons, but they, they don't have much, they, they have the, the feel of here's some one-offs, not here's part of a range. And to a certain extent, the, these early Tyranids in second edition have the same thing of like, here's just a one-off monster sort of thing, rather than an evolving member of a swarm that's crossed the gal into galactic space and is now arrived and is adapting to your galaxy even as we speak. Whereas by the time it hits third edition, you do get plastics to support that uh, more readily and a lot more work with biomorphs and actually representing the biomorphs on the models. That, that starts to gel together a lot better. Uh, trying to work with the metal ranges was always a bit tricky on that front. Cool, thanks for answering that, uh, Andy. And the last question we have here is from Nevin. Neverness Hobbies uh, was the decision to roll the Gene Stealer Cult as an army into the second edition codex based off the law and where was it going at the time or one based on sales store, sale, sales prep space allocation. That decision buried the Gene Stealer Cult and it looked... Uh, it took them two decades to come back. I think we sort of touched on this before. Yeah, I was talking about this when we went through the the, the beastry entries for them of like, yeah, if they hadn't gone in this codex, they would be gone by now, man. They would have just been gone. There, there were enough people who wanted to bury Gene Steel Colts forever around the studio that uh, this was their last best shot at remaining in the law. And so they did. Uh, certainly that's how it felt from my end at the time. So there was resistance to putting them in there. I strongly disagree that it buried them for decades i think it saved them yeah i actually really like the genes of the cults it's actually it's probably one aspect of the gene of the whole tyranid army that i never played tyranids never collected models or painted them or anything like that but it was one aspect of them i really appealed that to that was also part of the point of having the genes look cult in here was yeah. it was an easier half step away from oh hey you know what i've got my box of space hulk i've already got 24 gene stealers Oh hey, I've actually got some Imperial Guard. I've got a Lehman Russ. All I've got to do now is buy a Magus, and I've got a Gene Stealer Cult Army. Uh, and you can sell some more so, tanks. And so you could sell some more tanks, or even potentially sell people on the idea of you know expanding their hybrid force, then maybe getting some Tyranid stuff in there later, and so on. So it, it was an approachability thing as much as anything else. Uh, and as I say, narratively, it was important to have. Tyranny is not just as the you know indomitable wave of flesh crashing down on your planet, but also something more insidious that could work behind the lines, could strike anywhere in the Imperium at any time, uh, was a very useful narrative to hook to have for them. It's a shame that the um, the orc hybrids didn't make it in there. <laughs> 
I don't know. I think the world could do without those, frankly. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to say that, Andy. I knew you were going to say I've that. I've painted up uh, quite a few <laughs> recently. I love them. Yeah. I think they're, they're really good. Uh, <laughs> all that hybrids, I mean, also too. Squat well, thanks for saving the the gene stealer cult because um, uh, that's my perception of it. Like, yeah, so don't no. don't go to the no, bank no. with that too much. But um, it, it it kind of delighted me. I must confess when they came out full force with like, hey, we got plastic rangers and bikes oh, and vehicles fantastic. and everything. It's like everything you could have ever dreamed of, really. Um, yeah, but yeah, they, they had a very uncertain future back in the early nineties. I can tell you. Well, Andy, Ben, it's been an absolute fascinating ride uh, going through the Codex of Tyranids. Uh, I've been educated a lot in this um, in our conversations today. Um, Andy, I want to extend our greatest thanks again from myself and Ben and the community for taking your time out on your Monday, mate, Monday afternoon to come and talk to us about it and to share your knowledge and uh, your memories. I hope they're all good memories, of course, from the 90s in, um, in the production of the Tyranids Codex. Um, Ben, you got any final thoughts, mate? You want to you extend to Andy? Oh, look, um, thanks for creating the greatest 40K race, uh, of course. I will be working at it. Yeah, um, work of many look, hands, not just me. Yeah, of course, of course. But your name's on the codex, mate. Um, <laughs> look, I, I don't want to fanboy too much because uh, that's very cringy, but um, thanks for entertaining us for all the years. Obviously, thanks for continuing to do so and lending your expertise to board games, tabletop games, et cetera. Um, is there anything you're working on at the moment or you want to plug or anything like that? Two things, actually. Um, well, multiple things, if you'll forgive me for a moment. If you've enjoyed my skirmish games uh, in the past, like second edition stuff and so forth, uh, take a look at Warlord Games 2000 AD selection of games that me and Gav Thorpe have come up with, Strontium Dog, Judge Dread, and Slain at the moment for a fantasy version of them and they, they kind of embody some of the 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 cray cray of second edition in many ways but wrapped up in a nice modern set of mechanics which might, won't make your brain burst in quite the same way but they do actually manage to embody some of that feel they're very small level skirmish games um you know as little as two to six guys aside but they're a good laugh so those there's one check that out if you like my kind of stuff the other one is I've done a World War II um, mass aerial combat game called Blood Red Skies, which is probably the best designed game I've ever done in my life. Uh, it is the simplest, simplest to learn and the hardest to master. And it works with three stats. So I'm very proud of that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, so that's also from Warlord Games, by the way, Blood Red Skies, Midway Edition is out now. So you can go and bomb the carriers aim for the flat top, as they say in Ghostbusters. The other thing I wanted to mention is I am actually working on a, yeah, let's say 28, 28 mil tabletop skirmish game at the moment, sci-fi, kind of mecha-based, kind of a bit anime, which I will, I'm going to be looking for playtesters for um, over the coming months because we're moving into private playtesting at the moment. And this is actually, out of all the many things I've worked on down the years, this is the one that's kind of actually got me painting miniatures again. Um, so I think it's going to be fun, but I'd like some feedback. So a lot of people write to me over the years and say, oh, if you ever want, if you want feedback and things like that, let me know. I'm asking for that now. If you would, um, you can contact me at the Andy Chambers at hotmail.com or you can find me on Facebook under Andy Chambers. 
and let me know if you wanted to help out and um let's see where that goes i'll probably get buried or be sad because i get numb <laughs> i think marcel that'd be right up marcel's hobby uh ali yeah 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 no the um, game sounds great mate i'll i'll definitely drop links in the show notes as well so people who want to go and check out andy's links uh for his uh his personal email or on facebook uh, please have a look at the show description notes and you'll see them down there. Um, and I'll drop a link in there for Warlord Games because uh, Andy has worked uh, a lot with those game systems you've heard through uh, for uh, uh, 2000 AD and Slain, of course, is probably the latest one that uh, Andy's released. Slain's the latest one to come out. Um, good, actually, yeah, yeah. They're, they're all ongoing. Uh, have to games. strap on your belly wheel and, and take a look at that Judge Dredd stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You want to play uh, the League of Fatties, you can. they got miniatures and everything for them, man. <laughs> Sounds good, mate. No, definitely, people should definitely go and check that out. And Christmas is approaching, so they should put something in their uh, Christmas stocking, I think, this year. Something new, mate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Blood Red Skies as well. So, yeah, you've got lots of stuff there that Andy's working on at the moment. And um, made that mecha game sounds really interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that turns out to be eventually. So that's yeah, not- watch this space. Watch this space, yeah. and say there, there will be more coming for that over the course of particularly next year, I think. Cool. cool. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Okay, well, good, sir. Thank you very much again, Andy. Thanks again, Ben, for tonight. And um, have a great Christmas and New Year, both of you. And uh, take care. We'll see you in the New Year sometime, hopefully. Yeah, Indeed. Thanks, have everyone. a good one, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on today. It's always a great pleasure. You, you, you're a great pain, so make me feel very welcome. So I really appreciate that. And yeah, indeed, have a good holidays for you too as well. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much again, mate. Appreciate it very much. So thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. The scavengers struggled forwards over the debris littering the corridor. Their suit lights barely penetrating the swirl of dust kicked up by their progress. This section of the space hulk was a complete wreck. The corridor walls were buckled and twisted. Ancient cabling spilled from rents in the ceiling and the mangled floor plates jutted up at such angles that the group's movement was slowed to a crawl. The men wore a mismatch of patched spacesuits and pieces of armour. Most carried shoulder arms or pistols, but the leader hacked a path forward with a glowing power sword. The lights picked out a doorway ahead. The deep shadows within it jerked and leapt as the men struggled towards it. The leader stepped inside the doorway and swept his light around the chamber beyond. Thick, Riveted pipes obscured the ceiling, but the floor was mostly clear. Man-high, curiously curved objects clustered thickly on the walls at the edge of sight. Snaking tubes or cables seemed to interconnect them and trail away across the floor. The rest of the gang entered and fanned out covering all parts of the shadowy chamber with their las guns and auto pistols as their leader moved to examine the objects. At first, he could not determine their purpose at all. They glittered in the light 
like black shiny seeds. The tubes were of a similar hue, but with a bluish patina where they spread over the bases of the objects and divided into dozens of finer filaments. When he saw that some of them were open, he finally understood. And the hairs rose on the nape of his neck, just as a cold, sick sensation rose in his stomach. He spun round to shout at the rest to run, but it was already too late. Man-like creatures with four clawed arms dropped from the pipes above and ripped into them with impossible speed. Screams and shots echoed around the corridor as the men were torn apart, but none of the black-blue figures fell. In a few heartbeats, the leader stood alone. The creatures stalked closer, their bodies crouched as if ready to spring, their pallid, bulbous heads and fang-filled maws glittering in the light. The leader flourished his power sword with more confidence than he felt. The blade was instantly knocked from his hand by a blow that was too quick to see as the creatures darted forward. Powerful claws gripped his limbs and the man was held helpless as one of the gene stealers leaned closer. The hollow needle of its ovipositor slithered out of its tongue, questing almost gently towards the man's face. One month later, Free Captain Lamos landed at Grya too, with a most unusual cargo.